0: The issue with those laws is that we know from scads and scads of empirical research that they incentivize platforms to err on the side of caution and take down speech that actually is legal but that, you know, someone has made an allegation that it violates the law or someone at the platform noticed it and thought it might be illegal. You know, their incentive is to take that stuff down to protect themselves and to reduce the cost to themselves or to just broaden the prohibitions under their terms of service so they cover everything that might be illegal and then the platform never has to worry about those things at all.
1: I'm Quinta Jurasik and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 18th, 2021. Today we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Daphne Keller, the Director of the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center, and our go-to person when we need help untangling the latest news about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the statute that shields internet platforms from civil liability for third-party content on their websites. The statute has had a bad year, or really, a bad few years. It's been criticized by both Democrats and Republicans, and both President Trump and President Biden separately called for its repeal. So what should we expect in terms of potential revision of 230 during the current Congress? What does Daphne think about the various proposals on the table? And how is it that so many proposals to Reform 230 would be foiled by that pesky First Amendment? It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 18th. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly of Section 230 Reform
2: so we've decided to try rope you into being our section 230 correspondent perhaps against your will given that there's no one that knows platform regulation better than you and section 230 reform is all the rage these days there's a million 230 conversations and panels out there right now but we're hoping to get a little bit more wonky and and precise but let's let's start with the basics it's kind of wild that the words section 230 have become basically common parlance these days like I recently told a theoretical physicist broadly what I do. And he said, oh, like Section 230 stuff, um, which is in in one way a lawyer's dream to have people mentioning specific provisions of legislation in casual conversations, but also perhaps unsurprisingly, some of those casual conversations don't get the law quite right. So generally, what does Section 230 do and what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions about it?
0: So generally, Section 230 immunizes platforms for two categories of of behavior. It immunizes them for hosting content that violates some laws, not all laws, things like state defamation laws or invasion of privacy laws. They, They are immunized when users post that kind of speech. So they can choose not to take it down, although many of the big ones have huge content moderation teams trying to take down all kinds of things. The other prong of the immunity is an immunity for moderating content. So if they do take down your speech and you don't like it and you try to sue the platforms, you probably won't win. In fact, nobody has won on those claims so far. And those two prongs were necessary, the drafters of the law believed, in part to protect lawful speech and to avoid a sort of heckler's veto situation where false accusations might lead platforms to take down, you know, lawful but controversial speech but also in part to encourage different platforms to adopt different content moderation rules and know that they could safely undertake to try to moderate user content and to try to take down uncivil or illegal things without that being held against them and potentially leading to them facing liability for unlawful speech their users posted that they failed to spot
1: and take down. So how do you think we, we got here to this space where Theoretical physicists start asking Evelyn about Section 230. I, I, I just looked at the Trump Twitter archive and it looks like uh, the former president tweeted about Section 230 37 times. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So is, is there a particular moment you'd identify as the point where 230 sort of rocketed into the public consciousness? Is it, you know, 2016, the last two years of the Trump presidency? Like, when and how did we get here?
0: I don't think there's one moment. You know, whoever has discovered this topic most recently always thinks the most recent thing was the moment, but we've been through a lot of moments now. And I think, you know, there's just been a steady increase in very legitimate questions and concerns about how private companies, and particularly the really, really big private companies that own the biggest platforms like YouTube or Google, there's a legitimate concern about what speech they permit or what speech they prioritize and to what degree they're maybe acting as gatekeepers for public discourse or allowing or encouraging illegal or harmful speech to flourish. So there's every reason that people are focused on this topic. And things like the 2016 election and the potential role of the presumed real role of disinformation, things like the January 2021 Mob attack on the Capitol building all of these <laughs> rightly ratchet up that attention even further but the the other thing that sort of made section two thirty itself a buzzword is as as you've mentioned, the former president Donald Trump became very focused on it, and you know he's he's very savvy about how to manipulate and punish people, and he figured out that threatening to change two thirty. Was sort of a way of getting at the companies he disapproved of, and, and Twitter in particular. And so he became very focused on it and talked about it at rallies. And other Republicans became very focused on it over the, you know, last half of 2020. So we we saw a lot of proposals coming out of that that I think were, you know, in good part theater. <laughs> they weren't necessarily serious legal proposals, but they did draw a great deal of attention.
1: Yeah, looking at some of his tweets, there is a tweet from October 2020 where he just tweeted in all caps, repeal Section 230, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, and then retweeted that the next day. But of course, (laughs) President Biden then running for the Democratic nomination, I think in the uh, winter of the uh, Democratic primary, I had an interview with the New York Times editorial board where he said that he thought that 230 should be repealed, I believe, to the great surprise of the editorial board writer who had asked him the question. On the other hand, the New York Times had an interesting story recently about how calls for 230 reform have kind of moderated in recent months that we've gone from these outright calls to repeal by both sides of the aisle to more nuanced proposals, although I should emphasize that nuanced is not necessarily the same as as good. Why do you think that is? Is this sort of, you know, a dog, the dog catches up with the car where lawmakers have to be a little more responsible now that serious changes may actually be possible? I
0: think that's part of it. And I, I think part of it is just that there, there's been a learning curve. There There is a lot about how platform content moderation works and how laws like 230 shape platforms' behavior that isn't necessarily intuitive. And so, you know, staffers on Capitol Hill who were new to this issue a year or two ago have now kind of gotten their heads around it and, and you know, appreciated some of the complexities and, and seen a lot of the downsides of what outright repeal would probably mean. Uh, and so I think it is the outcome of that learning process in the public discussion and on Capitol Hill that has led to this shift.
2: So... The spectre that hangs over all of these debates, of course, is the First Amendment. And you've written about sort of the constitutional hurdles, some of them, you know, obvious and some of them drastically underrecognized, that heavily shape the regulatory space that Congress will have to work within as it goes through this process and, and, and looking at these bills. Uh, and I think perhaps that's a useful window for us to use in this conversation to sort of evaluate some of the some of the proposals. So I mean, obviously the the first is the idea that Congress can't ban constitutionally protected speech, which you think would be intuitive, except that so often conversations about content moderation seem to get that wrong. For example, blaming Section 230 for hate speech on social media, when of course, for better or for worse, hate speech is protected by the First Amendment, as is COVID or political misinformation.
0: Right. And and as I recall, the hate speech statement is one of the several Things the New York Times has had to run corrections about in their C- CDA two hundred and thirty coverage,
2: right? Misinformation about misinformation on social media in the New York Times, and I think you know once those things enter the public consciousness, it's very hard to get them out. And it's it. I mean, it's also when you watch these congressional hearings, uh, lawmakers are berating platforms for the presence of constitutionally protected speech on their platforms in a way that I think is a, is an interesting dynamic but you've also written about how the idea that laws that restrict or target illegal speech on social media but would foreseeably cause platforms to restrict legal speech can also violate the first amendment and i think that's slightly less intuitive so can you talk about how that works
0: yeah well if you don't mind i'll I'll talk first about just the first order problem of what speech is actually illegal and what speech can Congress actually prohibit platforms from carrying? Because I think that really distorts the CDA 230
2: discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Please.
0: Yeah. People, including members of Congress, don't know what speech is legal and illegal. Um, They assume that things that are super offensive and harmful, like the video of the Christchurch massacre, like really, really bad stuff, they assume that must be illegal, when in fact, in many instances, even sharing something like that, it is protected speech under the First Amendment, as is hate speech, as are a lot of, you know, really problematic things. And, and that assumption that like, oh, all this speech I don't like, it must be illegal, it causes them to miscalculate the tradeoffs involved in changing Section 230. You know, they, they hear from people like me that if you eliminate 230, there are going to be some downsides, like platforms maybe disincentivized to moderate in the first place, uh, or if they do moderate, they'll overdo it and have a lot of collateral damage to lawful speech, and that'll probably have disparate impact, and it'll be anti-competitive. There are all these downsides. But if you're thinking about it and you believe that on the upside, changing 230 would mean getting rid of hate speech... And electoral disinformation and anti-vax and other public health misinformation, you might think that is a worthwhile trade-off, but (laughs) that is not actually the trade-off, right? The law, a change to 230 can't have those upsides, if you consider them upsides, because the First Amendment would still make all of that lawful but awful speech protected. You know, platforms would still have no legal obligation to take it down. Yeah, I think of that as like the first order, first amendment problem is what speech can Congress even regulate in the first place? And then to go on to the second part of your question about intermediary liability laws, which is the class of laws like CDA 230 or like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, laws that tell platforms what legal responsibility they have when their users post unlawful or infringing speech. The issue with those laws is that we know from scads and scads of empirical research that they incentivize platforms to err on the side of caution and take down speech that actually is legal but that you know someone has made an allegation that it violates the law or someone at the platform noticed it and thought it might be illegal you know that their incentive is to take that stuff down to protect themselves and to reduce The cost to themselves or to just broaden the prohibitions under their terms of service so they cover everything that might be illegal and then the platform never has to worry about those things at all and those incentives for platforms that face liability for user speech to just go ahead and take down way too much can make a law unconstitutional you know we know that at some point we don't know the exact point but we know that at some point a law that incentivizes platforms to go around silencing lawful speech is itself violating the First Amendment. And we know this because of mid-century cases like Smith versus California, which was about regulating obscenity, obscene books in a bookstore. And the court said there can't be strict liability. You can't say the bookseller is automatically liable for any obscene book on his shelves because otherwise he will be incentivized to go out and carry out a kind of censorship that the state could not have achieved directly, you know, that would have been unconstitutional if written into the law. Congress can equally violate the Constitution by going out and incentivizing platforms to, quote unquote, voluntarily take down too much content. And that is a problem that, you know, different countries are trying to navigate in different ways. You know, Europe is pretty, the EU is pretty far down the path of of new regulations trying to grapple with it in one way. But if we try to devise CDA 230 reform legislation in a way that's blind to that issue, I think we'll make a lot of mistakes and potentially just pass a law that will get struck down.
2: It's kind of hilarious how, you know, Facebook is running this massive campaign at the moment where it has these ads saying, you know, it's been 25 years since uh, meaningful internet regulation was passed and a lot of things have changed since then. And then they have a photo of like a Discman. Maybe some of our audience won't even know what a Discman is or like a mobile phone that looks like a brick um, and saying that, it you know, the, that we need to update the laws. And then here you are quoting cases about bookstores as the, the governing sort of case law and precedent that we have for working out what these social media platforms should do, which just seems like a completely wild situation to be in. But I guess it's because, I mean, I don't know, I guess it's because the First Amendment has closed off in a lot of ways and Section 230, perhaps, uh, has closed off a lot of ways for the case law to develop through the judicial um, that has left us sort of with these sparse precedents.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's that's part of it. You know, we've kind of lived in the shelter of two big statutory regimes, the CDA 230 and the DMCA. And so our courts haven't had to answer these questions about what the First Amendment w- would require. For the most part, there's a really interesting district court case called CDT v. Papert that wrestles with exactly this. So we, we, it's not that we have nothing at all. But you know, it, it's interesting to me to see Facebook or potentially my former employer, Google, <laughs> suggesting that they might support changes to cda 230 i find it hard to read that as anything other than look at this bright shiny object over here and don't think about privacy and competition laws i think the much greater threat to them would be in changes to privacy and competition laws and there are ways that those changes could affect some of the concerns about online speech you know for, for the better but the you know changes to 230 are more likely to be tolerable
1: and not hit the bottom line of the biggest incumbent tech companies. Yes, I want to ask you a little bit more about that, because it's something I've been curious about. If our listeners wouldn't mind casting their minds back to the so-long-ago days of 2017, Uh, There was this bill called FOSTA, which (laughs) reformed Section 230 to nominally combat sex trafficking. And one of the really things that was interesting about it was that the Internet Association, sort of a trade association that represents the platforms that are sort of household names, eventually turned around and endorsed the legislation. And that struck me as a really big moment at the time, because here was Section 230, which had seemed so untouchable as a piece of legislation for so long. And then here was the Internet Association that sort of looked at it and said, you know what, we're actually, we're gonna go along with this one. I wonder, given that history and given what you and Evelyn were both saying about big companies, at least like Facebook for now, sort of saying, you know, we we support changes in regulation, though we're not gonna say what those changes are, do you have a sense of what we should Expect from the big companies and from the industry in this space? Like, how at risk are we of ending up with a bill that sort of cements the dominance of big platforms like Facebook by creating obligations that only it and a handful of other really big companies can comply with and doesn't touch, as you say, on the sort of privacy and competition aspects?
0: I worry about this quite a bit, but I also think that. You know, every month that passes without a new bill getting traction is a month more education going on among the staffers and policymakers who are thinking about these laws. So I do have some optimism that, you know, the more the conversation slows down and is careful and precise, the more policymakers will spot the trade offs here between you know, increasing regulation of online content on the one hand, and having that come at the cost of further entrenching incumbents on the other hand. And, you know, if I recall correctly, I hope I have this right. I was in DC when it was either the day that IA came, Internet Association came out in favor of SESTA-FASA, or the day that Facebook did. And it was a day that Facebook uh, and other big platforms had been called before Congress to testify about of uh, something that made them very anxious i think it was electoral interference and this is back before they were called before congress every week <laughs> but this sort of this moment of we're facing serious pressure on another front let's find a give on the cda 230 front
2: seemed kind of
0: conspicuous at the time
2: definitely so let's go back to the constitutional hurdles then a now familiar refrain in this space is that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. And so while Congress might not be able to regulate speech itself, it might be able to regulate amplification. And this feels like a very attractive argument because increasingly the mainstream view is that what makes platforms so Quote, unquote dangerous is not the speech itself, but the way that they incentivize and amplify incendiary and inflammatory content. For example, hate speech on Facebook might be unavoidable because humans suck, but Facebook doesn't need to promote that content and give it further reach by boosting it in news feeds when it gets lots of likes. And this is the gist of one, at least one, high-profile two hundred and thirty reform bill out there right now—the Protecting Americans from Dangerous Algorithms bill. You also think this is constitutionally unsound too. Why is that?
0: So the idea that we should distinguish between speech and reach is a useful one, right? That, you know, this is something that was coined by my Stanford colleague Renee DeResta, and it you know, it speaks to the fact that platforms can choose you know, to host certain content, but not to amplify it through recommendations or not to put it high in a newsfeed. They can can distinguish between, you know, offering speech to users and offering additional reach to users. Congress, on the other hand, does not have that same freedom. They're not allowed to regulate speech or reach, except within some very narrowly defined constraints, you know, coming from Supreme Court precedent and i think as you said the idea is very intuitive to people that uh it should be possible to regulate amplification either because it's more harmful or because it is more like morally attributable to the to the platforms but the supreme court precedent on laws that just burden certain speech without outright banning it uh, you know, that make it harder to distribute, but don't make it illegal, says those two kinds of laws get the exact same strict constitutional scrutiny. So that there isn't a workaround where Congress can say, oh, we're not regulating speech, we're just regulating amplification, and that solves any First Amendment problems. It just sort of compounds the First Amendment problems and, and makes them more complicated. So I, you know, I I worry... <laughs> Quite a bit <laughs> about this this approach to regulation, in part because it's just hard for people to spot that there even is a First Amendment problem you know on its face, uh, you know, laws that regulate only actually illegal speech seem like they should be okay except for this general problem of them encouraging platforms to over enforce and shifting to focusing on amplification makes them over-enforce in a way where they demote certain content or exclude certain content from recommendations. But that raises the exact same First Amendment problem as we know from these cases like Playboy and some other uh, Supreme Court cases about quote unquote, merely burdening speech. The bill you mentioned from representatives Eschew and Malinowski is interesting because both for this reason, you know, it's it's the first of what I predict will be a number of amplification bills, also because of the claims it chooses to open up for people to bring against platforms. So it says that people can bring claims against platforms based on amplified user content for two specific kinds of claims. One is for material support of terrorism and the other is for a category of domestic civil rights violations. And both of those are kind of weird laws to use for this or any other kind of intermediary liability law. The material support of terrorism law is strange, because there have been a lot of cases brought against platforms under this law already. And Some of them have been defeated by CDA 230, but others have gone to the merits and the courts have said, no, there isn't a claim against platforms under this law anyway, because it fails to meet there's a causation requirement in the statute that's not met by ordinary platform operations. So that's kind of a weird one to use, although presumably the reason that the offices chose to use it is because of the force versus Facebook case, which is a case about amplification and 230 and material support laws. The second set of claims that it uses are under two statutes that were drafted in the 1860s, to create causes of action against the KKK in the Reconstruction South. And so they cover a mix of things that sound archaic to us, or hopefully sound archaic to us now, like going in disguise on the highways, and then things that are really creepily fresh sounding um, about interfering with electoral outcomes and, and, and with voting. But that, too, is like a really weird law to use because it was drafted for such a different world, and the the odds of it happening to be a good fit for online speech and for requirements on platforms today are are just you know pretty low and indeed, how these laws actually get used in practice are often in suits kind of like the ones we've seen from Dennis Prager and other conservative activists, you know, saying that that platforms have interfered with their rights or that some conjunction of private actors and state actors uh, have conspired to harm their rights including speech rights. And so I think if this law did pass, you know, if we did open up this set of claims, we would see some really odd new cases being filed based on This sort of must carry theory uh, that is often used by conservatives saying that they've been silenced by social media. And because of some Supreme Court precedent I won't go into, it is likely that they would have to name a state actor co defendant. So then you would see, I don't know, members of Congress, somebody else being called into court in, in these cases. So it's an odd law that I don't think would play out quite the way people are anticipating.
1: Some of the bills that have been introduced take a kind of carrot, not stick approach or mostly carrot approach, sort of, you know, we won't punish you for doing whatever kind of content moderation, but if you really want 230 protection, you have to do something. And what that something is varies, whether it has to do with cooperating with law enforcement. There's a proposal in the EARN IT Act that has to do with encryption and investigations into child exploitation. What do you think of those proposals? So I think if
0: those proposals are trying to offer 230 immunity as a quid pro quo to get platforms to go out and take down lawful speech or police speech in a way that Congress couldn't mandate because of how much lawful speech would would be affected If that's the deal, the quid pro quo is you get this immunity, so you will go out and take more lawful speech. I don't think that's allowed. (laughs) Um, But this is a complicated area of First Amendment law. So, you know, no, no promises about outcomes. But, you know, generally speaking, while there are limited cases where Congress can create a benefit for you know, certain kinds of industries or certain companies or certain recipients of federal funding, they can create a benefit and say, hey, the, but the quid pro quo is that you have to forfeit some speech rights. Occasionally, they can do that. There are pretty narrow constraints on on when that is allowed. And I, I don't think <laughs> using 230 for that would work. Now, the, the answer might be different if you're saying, hey, 230 immunity is conditioned on something that has nothing to do with speech. I don't know, privacy protections or something. I'm not sure I think that makes sense as a policy matter to tie those two very different issues together. I would much rather see actual privacy laws <laughs> enacted to protect privacy. But the, the, the problem, the quid pro quo problem that I'm talking about specifically comes from asking platforms to forfeit their users' First Amendment rights or their own First Amendment rights in exchange for CDA 230 protection.
1: One thing that's really striking right now, and that I think the the huge range of stuff that uh some of the bills ask platforms to provide in in exchange for two thirty immunity, is that everyone on the hill is angry at platforms in some way or another and seems to agree that two thirty is the problem, but no one can actually agree on on what a good outcome is, and I think you you really see this in the recent congressional hearings about this where Democrats are angry that, you know, content that is linked to domestic terrorism or, you know, housing discrimination, racism is staying up and think that it should go down. Republicans are angry that platforms have taken things down because they're arguing uh, without any hard evidence that there's a you know, censorship of conservative viewpoints. Um, you, you've written about the the sort of selective outrage that's inherent in some of the Republican reform proposals. Can you just like walk us through this landscape and what you make of that kind of split screen of how the different parties are thinking about 230?
0: Yeah, it it is a politically difficult situation. So You know, fights about 230 or fights about platform content policies have kind of become a proxy for different people's beliefs about what speech should be permitted in the first place. Um, And so as a result, we are seeing, you know, a lot of the hearings, as you said, become this kind of back and forth between Democrats saying, take down more speech, you know, hey, platforms, you're doing it wrong, you you need to take down more speech. And Republicans, on the other hand, saying, no, 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 stop taking down so much speech, you know, you're doing it wrong, You, you need, you need to carry more speech. And those underlying differences of opinion about what speech should be permitted, those are not going to go away, we're not going to solve such a, you know, deep division through technology policy. But for the things that CDA 230 can address, it creates a little bit of a stalemate where it's hard to identify a path forward that Democrats and Republicans can agree on. And that makes probably the the most political momentum likely, in my opinion, and I'm not a DC wonk, so take this with the requisite grain of salt, but the things that seem to me likeliest to get traction... Are either on the one hand things that tackle harms that are so bad that everyone agrees, you know, something should be done, which was the case with the sex trafficking bill a couple of years ago, SESTA FOSTA. Or the second bucket that I can see bipartisan agreement on is rules that don't try to dictate anything about what speech platforms leave up or take down, but that instead try to put procedural rules. Around platform operations to make them more fair or make them more transparent. So the the sort of paradigm example of this, and in in my opinion the kind of best approach overall, although it is flawed in details, is the Pact Act from Senators uh, Schatz and Thune, and that kind of has a piece that's about illegal content that says that you know we're going to have a process where people harmed by illegal content or certain kinds of illegal content can go out and get a court order and then they take it to the platform and the platform takes the content down. And then a big piece that's about the content that platforms moderate of their own volition under the rule set in their terms of service or their community guidelines. And there, the PACT Act, you know, would put in place the rules that a lot of civil society globally has been asking for for a long time about things like platforms having to set out their rules very clearly and offering appeals when they take down something based on the terms of service violation and issuing transparency reports. And so because all of that is so procedural and isn't about solving the question of which speech platforms should take down, it seems more... (laughs) <laughs> more viable for for getting bipartisan support as as its sponsorship reflects. You know, that said, you know, much as I like PACT as an approach, I think the details of the specific obligations that it would impose could use a lot of refinement to, especially to reflect the kind of operational realities of of smaller platforms. And in a way, it's a little bit as if somebody sat down to write uh, like tax code or pharma regulation in a legal system that had never ever had those before, <laughs> and like there's just very little chance that on your first try you're going to come up with the perfect detailed regulation if if this isn't something that has a lot of precedent and experience and and so forth. And so you know I'm really glad that those uh, offices are trying trying to find a way forward on this, but I, I do think that they've kind of struck the wrong balance in exactly the obligations that they're creating.
2: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. The PACT Act is also the bill that I'm most bullish on for the reasons that you mentioned. First of all, it seems like the most politically viable bill that wouldn't be an absolute Disaster. I wanted to say some other word that's probably not kosher on a podcast. Then, and you know, also because it's as you've said, trying to reckon with the right things and the the logistics and the practicalities of, of content moderation. But as you just said, it, it doesn't always succeed. And I think you're uniquely well placed to talk about this, given your time that you talked about earlier as a as a platform lawyer a practitioner, as associate general counsel for Google, um, where you worked on amongst other things takedown decisions. And I think what we've seen is this massive gap between how lawmakers and, you know, to be fair, many academics and the media as well, understand content moderation and how practitioners or as you like to call them, the plumbers understand it. And and you were talking before about how every month is kind of precious here where we don't sort of rush forward and pass something terrible. Uh, It gives us time to upskill lawmakers about how this actually works. So, What do the plumbers know that the lawmakers don't? What's the biggest gap in understanding here?
0: Well, you know, Evelyn, you mentioned earlier that humans suck. It it turns out that the humans who engage with content moderation systems also suck a great deal. And so, you know, I, I think the thing that anybody who works in content moderation knows is just the volume of nonsense complaints that you get asking to take things down that clearly don't need to come down. And if something really should come down and it's taken down, the volume of nonsense appeals that come, you know, mixed in with totally valid appeals because platforms may make mistakes all the time. But, you know, there's just a high rate of garbage in the system that would be familiar, I think, to anybody who has clerked and looked at random incoming pro se briefs there's a platform equivalent of that, but the barrier to entry is much lower because all you have to do is fill out a web form or send an email, and then somebody who is a content moderation professional has has to deal with it. So that's that's I think the the biggest difference in in perception. In Pact, the things that jump out at me most include requiring platforms over a certain size, but you know the size isn't that big. Over a certain to operate call centers to talk to people on the phone <laughs> about <laughs> the claims that might otherwise be submitted via a web form, um, and so instead of getting you know structured data incoming that makes it easy to process the claim, you're talking to somebody on on the phone, which I I don't think is a great idea. David Wilner, who's one of the sort of godfathers of content moderation, was on a webinar with me, and he said. If you're going to require call centers, you would be better off taking the amount of money that would have been spent on that and giving it to people to burn for heat. Like this is not the way that the you know the plumbers, as as I called them, uh, tend to approach the problem. Another thing that I worry about is requiring platforms to. There's this idea in Pact of giving them users like a almost like a package tracking system where you can go and see the status of your complaint or the status of your appeal in a special tool that the platform has created for that purpose. And like, that sounds cool too, but I worry a lot about, for example, you know, if you're a major retailer and you let consumers leave reviews of the sweaters that you sell or the widgets that you sell or whatever, are you going to bother even allowing those kinds of features if it comes at the cost of having to build a tool like that and having to you know, comply with the the many, many other steps that are listed out in PACT? Yeah, so, so I worry about those. I, I will add also that I got the term plumbers from the great Alex Fierst, uh, former head of legal and policy at Medium. Um, who talks about how when you come into working on platform speech issues, you might come in with a PhD in hydraulics and have a lot of highbrow theories, but you quickly discover that what you are is a plumber—you know, having to make the the water flow and tighten the right gaskets and so forth. And people who are interested in content moderation, sort of real world issues, should definitely check out a great post that Alex did interviewing real world content moderators about their experience if you google the words alex fierce banana peels you will find it
2: so i want to double endorse that post. Uh, and I also want to agree that I think the call centre is a terrible idea for a piece of legislation but an excellent idea for a podcast. I just think it would be such <laughs> a fantastic podcast series to have someone taking complaint calls from someone that like has a content moderation problem. Uh, I, I think the, the infinite possibilities of hilarity are, are, are great. Another thing that strikes me as a massive gap between like regulator and perhaps public understanding of this space and these issues and the reality is the use of automated tools. And it's a really striking thing how quickly these tools have come to dominate this space. So it's sort of uh, not surprising that people don't particularly understand them. I mean, Facebook has gone from catching what it says is 24% of the hate speech that it took down proactively, primarily using AI tools in 2017, to over 97% in its last report. So that's a, a huge, huge increase. We, we have no idea how accurate those figures are, for example. And I think you and I, last time you were on the podcast, we, we said we were going to get free the data t-shirts because we just need to crack these companies open to actually know what's going on and, and, and whether any of these stats are accurate. And I still think that's a good idea. But let's say, you know, roughly way more moderation is happening through the use of artificial intelligence and other automated tools. And while they are getting better, they also still kind of suck, just like humans and perhaps potentially even more than humans. But platforms like to spruik them a lot before uh, lawmakers. And once lawmakers hear about them, they get all excited and try and make platforms use them all over the place. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on these tools in general and what you think about how they would work, like whether they would work as a piece of uh, of the regulatory puzzle and how that might go under the constitution.
0: Yeah. So, well, so first, I think this relates to the idea of regulating amplification, because as, as you note, platforms like to go around saying how amazing their machine learning or artificial intelligence or other algorithmic systems are at identifying certain kinds of prohibited content and they also you know, like to talk a big game about how great their other algorithms are, for example, for placing ads in front of the right person. And so if you believe that platforms' internal algorithmic tools are so good that they can definitely tell when content is illegal, then it starts making sense to say, well, okay, (laughs) you know, then maybe we should put liability on you because you know which things are illegal and then you should take them down. But that's not how good those algorithms are. And in particular, it's not how good amplification algorithms are because all they're trying to do is sort of this scattershot approach of showing you enough things that you might like that, you know, you'll click on some of them. When platforms do try to develop algorithmic tools to identify which content is violating the law, they are not very good at it. Or let me say, not good enough to clear free expression hurdles in maybe any legal system, certainly under the First Amendment I certainly hope that there is no way under the First Amendment that current technologies for identifying things like violent extremism could be deemed mandatory or or appropriate for law enforcement. So the best case scenario for using automation to find unlawful content is the scenario Where most platforms use these tools already. That's for finding child sexual abuse material. These are, you know, worst of the worst content, extremely harmful. And it's images or videos that will never be lawful in any circumstance. There's no Context you can put it in uh, that will suddenly turn it into a lawful communication. And so, deploying an automated tool to just find duplicates of a particular image, or as the tools get better, to find fuzzy duplicates or cropped duplicates, works relatively well, although not perfectly, if what you're looking for is child sexual abuse material. But as soon as you shift to any kind of content that can be legal in particular contexts, things get very complicated. So for violent extremist content, for example, a video that is unlawful because it is an ISIS recruitment video in one context can become lawful when it or an excerpt is used in news reporting or in counter speech or in academic analysis. And an automated tool like a filter can't tell the difference between those two things. There's also strong ground for concern that automated filtering tools have disparate impact, that the errors that they make are not evenly distributed, but fall hardest on certain groups of people. So, for example, there's a study of algorithms that are supposed to detect hate speech, and it turns out that when they screw up and take down the wrong thing, they do that for speakers of African-American English much more than for the population as a whole. So there's a lot of concern both about impact on lawful speech and disparate impact from deploying automated tools. The question of whether lawmakers could require these tools to be deployed has been not very visible in the U.S. so far, but it has been absolutely front and center of the European policy debate for a number of years now. And so there's a lot of scholarship there and case law there. On this question, you know, a lot of it saying that filtering mandates can violate European free expression requirements under the legal instruments there, Uh, which is why I think that those same questions litigated against the the stronger protections of, of the First Amendment, a filtering mandate here would, I think, and hope, honestly, have a hard time in court.
1: So we've talked about a bunch of proposals here, some with more specificity than others. Are there other bills we haven't talked about that our listeners should know about in the landscape of potential 230 reform?
0: Well, I guess I, I'd name two categories. So one is we had at the end of the last term all of these bills from Republicans that were intended to you know counter conservative bias or require neutrality or set out very detailed rules about how 230 immunity is and is not to be available. And so, you know, maybe we will see more of that, although I I don't personally know of anything that's been introduced. I could have missed something. The other big category that I think is worth paying attention to is bills that are about civil rights claims. And so, we saw one version of civil rights claims in the Eshoo and Melanowski bill. That used the Reconstruction-era statutes that I mentioned. There's another one from Representative Clark, a bill called the Civil Rights Modernization Act. That one is about targeting ads in a way that could trigger civil rights claims and taking away immunity in, in that situation. And I think it's worth attention, you know, both in itself and because it is the first manifestation of a very widely held set of concerns about civil rights and discrimination and how those issues intersect with with CDA 230 in the case of this particular bill i can't quite tell which of two possible meanings it has and i haven't tried talking to the staff about this one so you know i'm, I'm coming to it relatively fresh but so on the one hand a bill like this could be saying Hey, platforms, if you take otherwise innocuous content and then your algorithms target it in a way that is discriminatory, then you can face liability for that. And the textbook case there is the several cases against Facebook for allowing racial targeting of ads for housing. And we have specific laws saying that racial targeting and gender targeting and other kinds of uh, discrimination in offers of housing, employment, and credit can all violate the law. And so because Facebook keeps getting sued for this and they keep settling the cases, we don't know if CDA 230 would actually immunize them from those kinds of claims anyway, You know, there's a pretty strong argument that what made that targeting illegal was the thing Facebook did. It's not about the speech posted by the advertiser in the first place. And so I I think a legal change that targeted only that seems not unreasonable to me, but I'm also not convinced it's needed because I, I think CDA 230 might already not immunize platforms in that situation. Then there's the other interpretation is that this might encompass taking away immunity for targeting users with content that was bad in the first place, You know, where the user or the advertiser posted something that was itself discriminatory or itself a violation of civil rights claims. If that's what we're talking about, it gets a lot more complicated because that resurfaces all of the same questions about deploying platforms to be the ones who decide which user speech violates the law. And in this case, it could be speech that is about some really important stuff, you know, like get out the vote efforts. And and so I would, you know, really want to slow down and look very, very carefully at what that kind of change in the law might mean.
2: So there's this idea that section 230 230- Created the internet in part because the great and extremely patient <laughs> Jeff Kosoff has coined it the twenty six words that created the internet in his wonderful book that illuminates like a lot of the history and 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 how it came to be and that's translated by some particularly ardent Section two thirty supporters that into this idea that any kind of repeal or reform would would break the internet. Let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Do we actually know what would happen if Section Two Hundred and Thirty was repealed or reformed? And maybe another way to put the question is is a way that it's often put to me, which is there is no other country in the world that has Section Two Hundred and Thirty, and yet I'm reliably informed that, and and I have some firsthand experience that they do in fact have the internet and a few websites. So would it really be so catastrophic if if Section Two Hundred and Thirty was reformed?
0: So I, I think it would be catastrophic to eliminate it in a number of ways, many of them having to do with competition and the effect on smaller platforms that can't afford to take on the risk or the legal exposure or the hiring 30,000 moderators, et cetera, that the the big incumbents can do. Um, So I, I do think that kind of change would meet my definition of catastrophic. On the question of what does the internet look like without CDA 230, It's it's really hard to answer that, just because the other countries we're comparing to have a bunch of other legal differences too. And Anupam Chander at Georgetown had a a great article called "How Law Made Silicon Valley," that spoke to this, that talked about both 230 immunities, but also you know the process-based notice and takedown of the DMCA and the you know. Lack of detailed data protection laws, and even things like the rules governing investor liability, all of these things that sort of made investing in and developing the companies that became the big successful american internet companies you know a, a whole bunch of laws went into that and so you know we we could say there's a reason that the biggest and most successful internet platforms are in the us and that reason is cda 230 but that's only part of the picture and and so that makes it quite hard to to tease these things apart
1: so I wanna close by asking, you you sort of maybe a little bit endorsed the Pact Act, or at least the the concept of the Pact Act with with some tweaks, but is that just because there's a risk of us heading toward total disaster and it's better to have pact than some complete nightmare of a bill? Or would it really be better in your view to just like do nothing at all like just leave it alone you know are are we sort of in the best of all possible worlds right now despite all the problems the internet is facing
0: we are not in the best of all possible worlds <laughs> see my previous plug for privacy laws but i am very wary of changes to cda 230 mostly because once legislation gets any kind of momentum who knows what's going to get stuck in there? Like we get scary hybrid proposals emerging late in processes, kind of like with SESTA-FOSTA, how these two competing approaches to the bill just got glommed together and both enacted. So, you know, I, I worry not because of specific problems with, for example, PACT, but because of things that could go wrong in the legislative process. That said... There are some things, and Pact captures a bunch of them that I think make sense. Like the idea that once a court has ascertained that particular content is illegal, that then the plaintiff who obtained that court order should be able to go show it to a platform and say, "Hey, this really is illegal. I can prove it. So take it down." That's not crazy, <laughs> you know. That would solve some real problems in the world. It also would introduce some new problems because we know that there are people out there falsifying court orders in order to get platforms to take things down for the platforms that take things down voluntarily based on court orders. This has prompted a little industry of falsifying court orders that would get worse under this standard. And we also, I think anybody who's been on the receiving end of kind of weird ex parte orders that were issued in a local court defamation you know dispute with only the plaintiff there there are court orders that that get the law wrong but that puts decisions about what's unlawful in the right hands you know in the hands of courts other things that i think are really important especially for the big big platforms that you know sort of function as as gatekeepers for for public discourse are things like the transparency mandates and requiring appeals for users whose content has been taken down. So I I, I think there's a lot that is of value there. I just am maybe too spooked by things that have happened with CDA 230 legislation in the past to feel very happy about anything gaining too
1: much traction right now. All right. On that note, that's all the time we have. Daphne, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer for this episode was Ian Wright, and our producer is Jen Pache-Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast in whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.